Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are regular short episodes where my co-host Paul Bishop and I get to hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast campfire and spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is New York Times bestselling author Chris Enns. Chris is a scriptwriter and comedian who has written for television, film, and performed on cruise ships and on stage. She has worked with award-winning musicians, writers, directors, producers, and as a screenwriter for Tricor Entertainment. But her passion is for telling the stories of the men and women who shaped the history and mythology of the American West. What strikes me the most about Chris's bio is that the stories she tells are the stories of the ordinary men and women who shaped American history when they came west as school marms, gold miners, madams, and mail-order brides. I'm happy our schedules worked together today so Chris and I could catch up. Thanks for reining in at the virtual campfire under the stars for some informal conversation, Chris. Happy to be here. Thank you so very much. Glad we could talk. I'd like to talk about three specific books today, two that shine a revelatory spotlight on a specific person or group of people, and a third that is more general in character. First up, the Academy of Western Artists honored, according to Kate, the legendary life of Big Nose Kate Elder, love of Doc Holliday, with the Elmer Kelton Award for Best Nonfiction Western of 2019. So, Big Nose Kate, please tell us about Kate. How did you come to write that story? Well, a few years back, I inherited uh, all of Big Nose Kate's things, her personal writings, her journals, her um, her letters. I, I inherited those things, and I was um, anxious to be able to write a story that was her story. Um, you know, she wanted so much for people to, she tried to sell her story when she was alive, but she, no one would give her the money that she thought it deserved. And so that didn't mean that she stopped writing her own, about her own life and her memoirs and her own journals. And uh, so I used that to be able to tell her story. And that's why it's called According to Kate, because according to Kate, these are the things that happened. Um, so you can't say, hey, Chris, that never happened. According to Kate, it sure did. So I was pleased to be able to do that. And, uh, and I'm happy for her that she's getting the attention that she deserves. She was quite the character and was there yeah. in, in the midst of some incredible Western history. And uh, I think that her voice um, needed to be heard. Oh, absolutely. Did you feel like you kind of got to know her as a real person through her writings uh, kind of get to know her as a friend more than, say, a historical figure? I, I did. And I, I, she just was incredibly feisty. And for me, I, I arrived on the other side of it looking at her relationship with Doc a little bit different than, than it's generally portrayed in films. And a lot of people would like to believe that it was Doc that supported Kate through a great deal of time. But Kate never stopped being the businesswoman that she was, even when she was with Doc. Uh, she paved her own way. And in just doing the book about her and um, spending some time with her and what she had to say, I think, quite frankly, it was the other way around. I mean, Doc didn't always win playing poker. Sometimes he lost big and then he needed somebody to support him. And there was Kate. What is your process like when writing so intimately about a person like Kate? Uh, now, in this case, you've actually got her writings there in front of you at your desk. Do you kind of research that first with notes and then go write the narrative, or do you do it all simultaneously? 
Well, I, I really pull all of uh, what she has to say together. And then I go back and do some research. I think, all right, is it possible that she could have been there? Is, is it possible that she was involved with Doc when she said that she was involved with Doc? What was going on in Dodge City in 1872, what was going on when she when she met Doc in St. Louis initially? Um, so I go back to that. I mean, I I, I went back and pulled um, some some amazing things in the archives. It wasn't just Kate's word alone. Um, I, I tried to to find the, the the parts in history that she said was happening that I could say, oh yeah, you know what? This is exactly what was going on when she said it was going on. Um, particularly when she was in Dodge City, you, you feel as though you were, uh, uh, you know, we're just passing through history, but Kate was history. And so, and I love Dodge City. And so anytime I get to spend time in Dodge doing research, I love it. And so her time in Dodge City was important for me to be able to research. And a lot of the things that she said about going from one saloon to the next and being involved with some of the famous characters that were there. She said that she was involved with a, um, a, a singing group called the, the, the Jolly, the Jolly Sisters. Of course they weren't, they were a singing dancing group, not very good, but she didn't necessarily have to be very good. But I loved going right. back and finding articles in um, the Dodge city newspapers about the Jolly Sisters. And she was dead on about those things. So I, I, that's the kind of thing I enjoyed. I mean, I did put in, I, you know, the book is written about what Kate says happened, but I did look at historical um, elements of, of her story and try to find what was going on around her when she, that she said was happening. And it definitely was happening. So I love doing that. I, I mean, there, she, she says that she was at the, she was at the gunfight at the OK Corral. She watched it through the, through the, through the room that she and doc had um, that they shared at Fly's photography studio. She watched what happened through the window. And she says afterwards, doc came back to the room and he sat on the end of the bed, edge of the bed he had been winged in the hip by a bullet, but he sat on the edge of the bed and he put his head in his hands and he said, my God, my God, what have we done? And he was just very upset about it. And, you know, I know there are people that say, oh, come on, Doc would never have done anything like that. But I believe when Kate said that, because you say things to somebody that you're romantically involved with, that you wouldn't go down to the to the bar and chat with the guys with about. So I, I believe that this this was said to a lover. I mean, I I walked away from there thinking, what an amazing woman she was, and lived quite a bit longer than you know, of course, all the rest of them did. So I, I just was really I was really happy with her, and I'm so glad she's getting the recognition that she deserves, and and she'll be somebody, she'll be a character that'll be with me forever. So speaking of Kate, you wrote about another Kate, Kate Warren, a couple years before the Kate Elder title. In The Pinks, subtitled The True Story of Kate Warren and the Other Women Who Served as Pinkertons, what drew you to write about her and her peers and the historic detective agency? Well, I'm also a private investigator, and so I love the deep dive on a subject. And when I um, first learned after I I spent some time in Washington going through the um, National Archives and digging through all of Alan Pinkerton's things. And that's when I came across Kate Warren and then learned about this woman who walks into Alan Pinkerton's office in Chicago in 1856 
and asks for a job. And he says to her, we're not hiring any secretaries right now. And she says, no, I don't want to be a secretary. I want to be an agent. I think I can be an operative that is uh, like none other that you currently have. So I'd like an opportunity. And um, he gave her the chance to be the star that she becomes. She takes on some amazing cases and works with some other great women who are also operatives with Pinkerton. Those those women were, and these these ladies would take on cases and they would be in this deep hiding spot for a long time. They'd be working undercover with different names and, and they would come out of that one situation that they'd be working undercover and then go right into another one with different names and different scenarios. Just brave women who did some incredible things and Kate Warren especially, who ends up being the head of what we now know as the Secret Service. So what surprised you the most in researching the history of these women? I think what surprised me the most was um, how progressive people like Alan Pinkerton were, who would give women an opportunity to work for him. You know, he was a good businessman. He knew exactly what needed to be done to be successful at, at his job. And these women were were unafraid to do the things that, that he he asked them to do and were quite clever in the way that they um, handled each one of the jobs that they went after. And masters of disguise. Kate Warren, I mean, at one time in her life when she was younger, she wanted to, to be on stage. And so she just parlayed that love of theater and that love of being able to put on an accent and put on a different costume and and just put on this different persona and use that to be able to solve these incredible crimes. There's just, it's such a rich story. It was hard to pick out any one thing. And a story that's untold or has been untold until now too. Right. I mean, you know, we know there's been books written about the Baltimore plot, which was the plot to uh, assassinate Lincoln before he took the oath of office after being um, elected president. We know about the plot to to assassinate him, but we don't know about these amazing women that were with Pinkerton's agency and the role that they played, Kate Warren. And then of course, Hattie Lawson was another one of his agents who played a significant role in making sure that Lincoln got where he needed to be. And and like I said to me, this is at a time period where you didn't necessarily think of women doing this kind of thing, but thank goodness for Pinkerton saying, yes, this is what we're going to do. From your Facebook posts, I know that The Pinks has been optioned to appear on TV. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, it has been optioned by um, by by NBC, and it has Terry Kopp as the uh, head writer on it, and she's done this amazing job. She also she also did a lo- she's also done a great many of the um, legal programs that that you see, Law and Order. She she's just amazing, and so. I went out to Los Angeles and I worked with her and um, they've put this amazing programming together to, to hopefully that's going to be on the, on um, the small screen in the not too distant future. I hope, I hope. It sounds really exciting. I can't wait to see how that develops. I'm always happy for stories um, that no one has really heard before to be able to brought to, to be brought to the forefront of the public's attention and, and anything that is, uh, steeped in the American West, I really love because there's nothing like the American frontier. 
You're right. And it's, um, it's had, you know, a kind of a hit and miss kind of experience with television over the years, hasn't it? Right. But I, I sincerely believe that um, we like stories about the American West because it seems like in the stories about the American West, the bad guys always got their comeuppance. And I think nowadays people like to see that kind of thing more than ever. I agree. So your new book, No Place for a Woman, The Struggle for Suffrage in the Wild West, is the story of women who pushed for voting rights decades ahead of the 19th Amendment. I love how often you pull back the pages of history to reveal things that we just generally, you know, we don't have a sense of. Um, we just talked about the women who worked with the Pinkertons. So please tell us about this book, No Place for a Woman. What does it reveal to us about women, politics, and the American West? Well, isn't it interesting how the suffrage movement got its start um, east of the Hudson, but it didn't get realized until it was west of the Mississippi. And um, women who traveled west and were in the American frontier when there wasn't a whole lot of people around, they were the ones that, that settled communities. They were the ones that educated the children. They, they founded churches. They founded libraries. And so just by the sheer force that they were there and being able to, to make such, significant, uh, such a significant difference in the rugged and wild West, they were able to uh, establish some of their own rules when it first began, which was, you know, we've been able to do all this. We are homesteaders. We, um, some of them were, were soldiers. They would disguise themselves as men and fight alongside the Buffalo soldiers. Some of them, any of them that could do that said, we should be able to, to have the right to vote. Certainly had places like Wyoming territory who needed to have more people in their territory to be able to, to, to shoot for statehood. And so in 1869, they said, you know, come here to Wyoming territory, ladies, and we'll give you the right to vote. And so Wyoming territory was the first territory in the West to pass suffrage. And then you have uh, the very first woman to vote there, which was Louisa Swain, and she does so in September of 1870. This 72-year-old um, grandmother goes into town and, and stops, to, um, stops to vote. That kind of pretty much sums up the, the, the grit that was in the women at that time. Now, you know, there have been women that were voting in other, other areas. Um, certainly the very first women to vote in the West were your um, soil doves, your ladies of ill repute, your prostitutes, as it were, because they owned businesses and they had to pay to have a license to run that business. And the funds from those um, payments went to support local law enforcement. And if you were lucky enough to have a fire department. And so by, by that sense, they were the first people to be able to vote in any kind of local elections. So it was just right and just that it would be that women in the West were some of the very first to vote in the country. And they led, they led the, the nation in that. I mean, there was a slogan, first the West, then the rest. Yes, I remember when we moved to Laramie, I was just amazed and uh, wonderfully surprised because these were things that I had never been taught, you know, um, in high school or even college. So it was new to me and it was just great. Isn't it amazing? And, uh, and, and here in, in, in Northern California, the uh, 19th Amendment was, was written in Northern California. 
And they started crafting and shaping that in the little bitty town of Nevada City, California in the late 1850s. Aaron Sargent and his wife, Ellen Sargent, started crafting it. He was uh, a senator, California senator, and his wife was, um, she was a suffragette. So they crafted it here and um, worked on honing it when they were on a um, train trip from from Wyoming into uh, Washington. And it just so happened that Susan B. Anthony was on that train and she befriended the sergeants and they kind of worked on um, the wording of the 19th Amendment. And by the time Susan got where she was going to go and the the, uh, sergeants were going on to Washington, the 19th Amendment was written, wasn't introduced and passed. Oh my gosh. I know, wasn't introduced and passed until August of 1920. But still, that's, I mean, can you imagine that fight, fight for suffrage was over 70 years. I don't want to even do anything I like for 70 years. This year has been really busy for you with the Pink's production and the release of the new book. And you've stayed active during the pandemic with your wonderful closet Facebook videos that reflect your life at home. Add to that, you have a new book coming out next year in 2021. What can you tell us about that? That book is called Iron Ladies, and it's about the women who influenced the American Railroad. If you ever see pictures, many of the pictures from when, um, from when the railroads met at Promontory Point in Utah, they uh, made a big deal of making sure that there are no women in any of the pictures. And they said it's because women had no hand in surveying the land or laying any of the rails, but it was women who really made traveling by train successful. And they influenced it in many, many respects. I mean, Dr. Mary Pennington invented the refrigerator car, which if we didn't have the refrigerator car, we wouldn't have been able to be as successful as we were in uh, World War One. I. I mean, she just was significant in that. You had Sure. Yeah, you go you go from Mary Pennington, who invented the railroad card, all the way down to Laura Bullion, who was um, the only woman to be involved in the last train robbery in the country. Women just did. They were influential, influential when it came to the railroads. I was amazed at all the things that women women were able to do from designing some of the some of the parts of the seating that people used. I mean. Traveling by train was not comfortable. And men just kind of threw it together and said, ah, here you go. But women came on and said, no, 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 no. Here's how you're going to get a lot of people to want to go by train. Here's what we need to do. Here's some improvements. We need to make some improvement in the seating, in the lighting, in the circulation of air, just the aesthetics of it. You have women like that who design special parts of the car. And then you couldn't possibly write about women who influenced the American Railroad uh, without talking about the Harvey girls and the impact that they had. So it was a fun book to do. And I think just another aspect of what women were doing in terms of influencing the American West. The pandemic has curtailed travel for uh, all of us, postponing or canceling events that we might usually attend, including some Western Writers of America events. As the president of WWA, what can we expect to see from the group during the remainder of 2020? We've got some very exciting things that are coming up for uh, for members and for those who write about the uh, the American West. We have a wonderful program called uh, Packing the West, which is going to be uh, um, 
an in-school presentation program where we're going to go in to schools with a trunk of uh, Western memorabilia and armed with a number of wonderful books written by our authors from Western Writers of America. And we'll go into schools and we're going to be sharing the history of the American West with students. And um, we're also going to be doing a remote teaching program too. So for those of the schools that are not necessarily uh, meeting uh, because of the pandemic and they're just doing remote teaching, we're going to be a part of that too. So just amazing things going on with Western writers. There are so many great opportunities to volunteer and be a part of WWA. And I've been amazed at just the warm and welcoming atmosphere that I've experienced over the years with WWA when I've been at the convention and in correspondence with people. So we would urge all the writers and folks that are interested in the West to check out the organization and try to be a part of Western Writers of America. It's a really rewarding experience. Well, it, and it is a, it's, it's rewarding to be a member. We also have our uh, SPUR Awards, and that's an annual award program. And if you go to westernwriters.org, you'll be able to find all the information about that. The program is... The, the program is amazing. The organization is amazing. I, I have met some of my best friends in the organization, friends I know I, I will hold for a lifetime. And you, you meet so many giving authors that can share their their process. And you, you, it's, it's a great networking place. It, it just helps you to be a better writer and you want to share. I mean, not everybody writes the same thing you do. I mean, I write, I write nonfiction books, but it's so wonderful to be talking with some of the great Spur Award winning authors that we have, like Carol Krigger, who this she's winning her second Spur for her romance books. And um, it's great to be able to talk with her and to discuss her process and, and the years that she has been doing this. And um, I mean, that's just one person. There are just so many. Thanks so much for visiting with us today, Chris, at the Six Gun Justice podcast. We wish you all the best of luck in the future. Thank you very much. I'm I'm so uh, grateful that you do have such a podcast that you can introduce the world to uh, more of the amazing Western writers and uh, particularly all of those Western writers who are a member of Western Writers of America. And we certainly hope people will go to our website, westernwritersofamerica.org, and check us out. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Enns for hanging out and chatting today. You can learn more about her at her website, chrisenns.com and follow her on Facebook and Twitter. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making the podcast possible. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed lessons, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Until next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride. (laughs) 